Let's pray together. Our Savior, we do thank you that you are a God who is about taking broken things and making them beautiful. We rejoice that that is your goal, your aim in meeting with us and working in our hearts uh, to take us from that place uh, where we have lived lives that are um, not what you intend and desire to bring us into a place where we're experiencing more of the fullness of who you've made us to be. May you work amongst us as we read your word and listen to it this morning. We ask that you would be at work by your spirit to show us the things that we need to know and hear and respond to, and that you would move us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Ed Satterfield, one of the pastors here, and excited about bringing the word to you this morning. Uh, We're looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. You can find that reading on page 9 in your bulletins, or you can find it in the Bibles in the pews. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, but behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing in this series of looking at Jesus' questions, and we've been noting that each time Jesus asks a question, his intent, his purpose, and we'll see that very clearly today, is that he would connect with us in a deeper, deeper level. And particularly today, we're seeing that he does that by helping us uh, explore some things ourselves about who we think he is, about ourselves, and about uh, how we see life. And so, um, This image that's put before us today is a pretty ridiculous one, isn't it? Uh, The idea that someone would try to fix somebody else, to take a little speck out of somebody else's eye when they've got a huge log in their own. That word there in the text is actually plank or beam. I like to think about it in terms of the, you know, the open concept header. That's one of those, you know, sometimes three or four boards wide, and it's this huge expanse. To think about one of those things in, in between my, me and the person I'm trying to fix. Uh, the depth and weight and uh, obstacle that that thing positions and proposes uh, makes it almost impossible to do anything constructive in somebody else's eye. So it's a ridiculous picture, but Jesus uses it to uh, help question, uh, to, to uh tell us that he wants, before we express judgment or criticism of others and before we go to trying to fix or correct other people, we have worked to do ourselves. Jesus is directing us to a place of level ground in our mutual desperation for the good news of Jesus Christ so that uh, the gospel might take hold in our lives in richer measure. Jesus' question first begs us to look at human nature. And so, our first thing we'll explore this morning is that Jesus is calling us to confront our natural state of blindness and to see the damage that it does. Why don't we see the log in our own eye? Why don't we go there first? Why are we prone to look at other people's issues uh, before we will or not even look at our own? Why do we think that we've got the ability to fix others? By Jesus' question, he's telling us something of his own conviction. 
of his own conclusion about what we're like as people. He, he's uh, certainly asserting that we are prone to criticism, that we're prone to judgment of others, that we're prone to want to fix other people, but he's also convinced that we have a big problem of ourselves. We ourselves deserve criticism and judgment. We need to be fixed because we're blind to our own issues. We've got the sequence all reversed. This is such a prevalent trait that I want to give you a little challenge for the week, uh, lest you be unconvinced that this is a big problem for us. Uh, just go one day this week without judging, or go just one day without uh, making criticism of others, or just go one day without complaining about someone. I think that if we took that challenge up, we'd find how often our hearts are prone to do this every day. Bottom line is we need to adopt Jesus' view of our own nature, and that is one of a problem of blindness. Scriptures tell us some incredible things about our own condition that are part of why Jesus is convinced that blindness is a big issue for us. Isaiah puts it this way, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of our foot, even to the top of our head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged or softened with oil. It's a pretty gruesome picture, isn't it? That we're wounded to the point where uh, it's everywhere, from foot to toe to head, we're covered with sores and boils and bruises, and yet they're untreated because we're blind to the fact that they're even there. The idea of a treating or softening with oil or pressing out and bandaging means that we're attending to our own wounds. Uh, this is our condition. There's something drastic going on head to foot, and we're not even tuned into it. Jeremiah puts it this way, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Picture of deceiving ourselves, of doing something that keeps ourselves blinded to what we are really like and what's really going on, and that we don't even understand our sickness. Then Paul, in the first chapter of Romans, puts it this way, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We press down the things that are even evident to us, that should be very obvious to us. We press them down in unrighteousness, meaning that we do all kinds of behavior that are ways that we kind of cover that stuff up by the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we speak. Fallen human nature, in Jesus' view and in the biblical view, is that we are unaware of our deepest personal issues. And it shows up the moment that sin is, uh, happens in the world. The first picture of sin in the Garden of Eden is that um, the, uh, when Adam and Eve choose to seek to be like God, to place themselves in an independent status, uh, going outside of God's boundaries, going outside of His design, uh, all of life is devastated. No one owns responsibility. No one admits that they have an issue, but what do they do? They externalize the if issue and shift the blame to someone else. Adam says it's Eve's problem. Eve says it's the serpent's problem. Likewise, both of them are hiding from God, sort of keeping themselves apart from Him. That hiding and compensating is part of the effect that sin has on our, our experience. 
The first sense of effect that uh, Genesis gives us in that description is that it says that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Uh, There's a sense in which when the first choice to live outside of God's boundaries was taken, uh, there was a deep wound that was experienced uh, that is expressed in terms of shame and guilt. And it was so intolerable that they couldn't face it. They had to hide from it. And so they hide from God, they hide from one another, they try uh, goofy ways to cover themselves. But all of that hiding and compensating was a way to actually go blind, to go dark in terms of self-awareness. And we do this, we build lifestyles that allow us to hide from the full truth of who we are. We take the God-given personality, the gifts and strengths that we have, and we build a lifestyle that is a way of trying to make life work uh, that makes it seem like things are okay, but they're really not. And that compensation lifestyle builds a self-righteous edge to it, and we end up judging others from the vantage point of our strengths, of the things that we do well. We often see those things in others uh, that we can uh, point to and see ourselves as better than they are. But you know, why does this even matter that we would talk about this? Um, We've got to know that uh, there's a sense of the destructiveness of what this blindness does to us. Judging and criticizing others, defending ourselves, keeps us from seeing our own issues and from seeing the broken places in our our lives. It's a way of building ourselves up uh, by comparing ourselves to one another. And if we don't really see what's at stake, what's at issue underneath uh, the things that are broken in our lives, we'll never get healed. We'll never see any restoration. We'll just stay stuck in a pattern of brokenness. Judging and criticizing others and defending ourselves also communicates to others condemnation and a lack of acceptance. It discourages other people, and it doesn't motivate change. Just try solving a conflict by pouring more judgment on the person with whom you're having the conflict. Criticize them even more. You'll never get anywhere, and that's what we often do. We defend ourselves, and we pour on more contempt. That step will not produce change, and it makes an ugly life and an ugly world. The combination of judging and not acknowledging our own part in a conflict prevents the real work of uncovering the real essence of the problem so we can't see change come. Problem solving fails because the whole problem is not even on the table, and so we see again and again we arrive at an impasse. And lastly, the gospel can't take hold. If we fail to see what is wrong and broken in us, we are never going to trust God for his remedy. We're never going to see the way in which his grace and his kindness might take hold in us. We're not relying on Jesus' victory over sin and over death so that it might uh, begin to bring resurrection life in our own experience, in another person's experience, and in our relationships and in our community. So this little tension here, because if we're blind, how do we become unblind? If we're prone to not see things accurately and correctly, to defend ourselves against it, to hide from it, how do we become unblind? We need God's Spirit, need His Spirit to help awaken us, to see those things that are broken in us, and He's at work doing just that. It's like the dashboard lights on your car that Jesus is telling us in this passage. When you see yourself judging, 
criticizing someone else, that's like the dashboard light going off saying, something isn't right here. <laughs> you need to look at yourself. When, when conflict is happening, it's a sign to us that something's broken, something's not working, and we need to look deeply at what the real source of that issue is. When we find ourselves becoming angry or quickly criticizing or complaining, that's a dashboard light telling us. And Jesus is speaking to us, and he's proposing this question. Why don't you look at the log that is in your own eye? That leads us to our second point. Jesus is not only calling us to see, uh, to confront our blindness and the damage it does, but he's calling us to the long-term journey of restoring our sight. Jesus is active. He's intervening. He's got those flashboard lights blinking when uh, those things uh, we see happen uh, day in and day out. And he wants to do something about that, to bring about restoring sight and restoring life. Well, I'm gonna, uh, many of you have seen this uh, cross chart before, but some of you may not have. Uh, it's a helpful tool in terms of thinking about the Christian life. Before we meet Jesus and come to trust in him, we're a bit in the dark about who God is, how good he is, how perfect he is. We know maybe something vague about who he is, but we're really not comprehending the fullness of who God is. And the same with ourselves. We have some sense that something's wrong with us, but we aren't clear on exactly what that is. And a part of what God does is he begins to shine the light in our lives in such a way that we begin to know who he is. We see his goodness, his love, his mercy, uh, which coaxes us to begin to see our brokenness and our need. We begin to see his standard for who we're supposed to be, who he created us to be. And we see how far short we fall from that. And we're brought to a place where we start to recognize, I'm broken. I'm blind to it. And now I'm seeing some things. I need a savior. I need someone to come not only to forgive what is broken in me, but to mend it and to heal it. And so that's why the cross becomes central in our lives. And the whole of our journey is supposed to be ever-increasing growth in both knowing more about who God is, knowing more about what He expects of our lives, and the more we see His perfection, His holiness, His goodness, the standards He has for our lives, the more we see the places in our own lives that are broken, that are marred, and that are unfixed. And the more we become desperate for His resolution, His saving work of not only forgiving, but changing, transforming, restoring those aspects of our lives. If that's the journey that we're on, sometimes uh, as we journey as Christians, we do some things to truncate the cross in our lives. We reduce it. And so this next slide shows what we do uh, when we um, do that. We uh, find some ways of both performing and pretending in ways that start to um, make it look like we're doing better than we really are. Performing is an attempt to um, try harder at the, being faithful to the things that we expect that God calls us to be and to do. And often we exaggerate how well we're doing or we rehearse how hard we're working to uh, do all that God expects and wants us to do. But all we're doing is trying harder on our own efforts. We aren't ending up seeing more brokenness or more uh, of a desperate need for clinging to our Savior and finding His life uh, to be produced in us. We're just trying harder. And we may manufacture some things that look a little bit okay, but we still have, uh, we truncate the work that he's doing of showing us more and more those broken places and those blind places that need his healing touch. And likewise with pretending. 
uh, we are often picturing ourselves better than we are. We do it by minimizing the extent of our failures and our faults. We say things like, it's not as bad as you said it was. Um, I'm really better than, than that. Or we compare ourselves to others and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. And we do so in a way that uh, helps us to pretend that we're really better off than we really are. And both of these journeys uh, take us to places that inhibit the work of God's grace and the cross in our own lives. I want to suggest two ways that we can help ourselves see the performing or the pretending that's going on. And one is just by using some, uh, just calling it for what it is, (laughs) naming some small uh, little things that happen all the time that probably have wider and greater roots than we even know about ourselves. Uh, But I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, One is called driving righteousness. Uh, When I go around the city, I see people on their cell phones, and they may be going too slow in front of me, and I get really ticked at them because they're inhibiting my progress. Or my favorite one is turning left at a left turn light, and the light turns green, and the person doesn't go And you know that only seven cars can get through that light. And every second that goes by means you've got less chance to get through it. We get angry. We get furious. Um, Driving righteousness, where some way in which I'm feeling more self-righteous than the next person. And I uh, spew out judgment and criticism in my anger over what's wrong in the world. Another one is good intentions righteousness. I tried to think of one that has... uh, uh, that happens a lot in uh, relationships that are really close. Uh, When we find uh, patterns that happen in our marriages or in our close friendships, uh, we see things that recur. And so we will ping that to the other person and say, you got to keep fixing that. You got to keep fixing that. And good intentions righteousness is one that I've used quite a bit in my life, which is to say, you don't know how hard I've been working on that. I've been really, really, I've read a book on anger. I've been really struggling with it. I'm talking with all my brothers about it. They're praying for me. You don't know how it worked. You don't understand how hard I've worked to change this. As if just by understanding that I've had good intentions, that I've had uh, some good effort should excuse what I've just done. Another one that I think is rampant in our own society we could call political righteousness. It's using confidence in our own political perspective to do nothing but to be critical or to judge the other side. And it just creates the nastiest environment. Um, We end up speaking only to and being heard by the people on our side. It really doesn't do anything constructive. It comes out of our frustration. And there, there may be lots of truth to what we think and say in each of these aspects of righteousness. But there's something underneath that needs to be looked at and examined because no real progress is being made by our blindness to what our righteousness is telling us. So you may do that in your own life. Just um, you can come up with nice pet names to some of the stuff that commonly happens in your day uh, when it pops up. Um, But another way we can do this is to look at patterns in our lives. Many of you have taken personality inventories. Uh, Right now, the Enneagram is really big. But looking at ways that your personality, your strengths, your type of life that you have um, had shaped uh, for whatever reason, you are who you are, the ways in which we can understand the strengths and the dynamic ways in which that personality really does good things in the world and in our life, but we can also see the weakness, the under, underside to that, 
where there are weaknesses that are part of that personality, the ways in which we consistently find things that break down because we use that particular lifestyle or that approach to life. Either way, we have a desperate need for the Lord to help keep showing us uh, those places that are broken in us so that we might find restoration. So if we put back up the first cross chart that we looked at a little bit earlier, what God wants to do is to show us increasingly the ways that we're um, pretending, the ways that we are uh, performing, so that we might be set free from those patterns of life, so that we might depend in a fresh way upon the Lord's grace and His kindness. And when we do, what we find is that uh, God is meeting us in those places. And we only do it because we know that forgiveness is already secured that we can look deeply at what is broken in us because we know that that's already been forgiven. And so I can come in confidence to that task of seeing myself more clearly uh, because I know not only is Jesus forgiven it, but He's present in my life to see the production of new life, to transform me and reshape me. And so we want to see the grace of God take deeper hold. And so the cross becomes more and more central in our lives because we know how much we need Him in our blindness, in our brokenness, and in our need. And as we begin to get clearer on who we are, that's when we're first ready to start talking about conflict, to start talking about the speck in the brother's eye. This last point is Jesus is calling us to do conflict differently. Jesus' followers should be peacemakers. More than anybody else on the planet, we should be people that are ready to engage in conflict because we know the grace of God is ready to engage in conflict because we know that God wants to transform, reshape, remake. And we do so in humility and with gentleness and with carefulness, acknowledging our own problems and, in a sense, turning the judgment on ourselves first because we know that as we do that, God's grace is there to meet us. Here are a couple of principles that I would say the Scriptures give us that help us in thinking through a way to do conflict differently. First is the way that we see conflict itself. Conflict is God's way of pointing out brokenness that needs healing, that needs transformation. So on one level, welcome conflict, Christian, because then God can take hold. God can uncover the real essence of the problem and begin to bring His healing restorative hand to bear. He can take things broken and make them beautiful. The purpose of conflict, secondly, is peacemaking in the full sense of that biblical word. Shalom means that we are coming to a place that God is producing wholeness, that He's making something that's broken whole again, that He's taken something that is hurt or wounded and healing it. He's restoring it to its original shape and design. And if we know that God is about doing that kind of work of restoration, we're looking uh, to conflict differently. Uh, Instead of just trying to fix the little problem, the little speck in our brother and sister's eye, we're looking at bigger and wider and greater issues. And we're trying to see how God wants to make that person beautiful, how He wants to make them whole. And a vision of who God is making that person to be is a different way of doing conflict. If I begin to see my uh, brother or my sister in conflict as one that God loves and God wants to produce beauty in, and I long for that and pray for that and begin to envision it, conflict takes on a whole different shape. The third thing is that often we have the choice to overlook the fault, 
to not even mention it, not judge, not criticize. And that certainly is a tough thing to do, but it's extending the same forgiveness that the Lord Jesus did when he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. There are all, always times when we can't avoid certain conflicts because they are the very things that need to be changed in our partner or in someone else, in our own selves. So there are times that we can't overlook the fault, but there are many, many times that we do small things that we know that our partner knows about that they're praying for and we just goof up again. And so to extend grace is a massive way that we could do conflict differently, to overlook that fault, to let it pass by, to forgive it, uh, to not notice it is a way of extending God's grace. Another way that we can do conflict differently is by taking time. If we immediately respond to an issue or a conflict, what are we usually going to do? We react out of emotion. We react and rather than really consider what all is going on, and usually that leads to uh, more conflict. But if I take some time sometimes to back off of what just happened, uh, to explore first myself, what did I do that might have contributed to this issue? I might not even need to talk about it. It might be all me. Another way that it, uh, taking time might help is to get enough distance that I begin to think straight and think through what is it that I should say, how should I say it, how do I approach this issue. Um, another way that taking time helps is to begin to understand the other person, to ask the Lord to show me a little bit more clearly. How is he wanting to shape that person? What is he doing through this particular conflict or this particular issue that he wants to transform them into? And the more I can envision that, the better that conflict will go. And lastly, some conflicts require outside help. After doing our best, seeking our best efforts at taking time, praying, thinking through, uh, seeking to resolve that conflict, we might see that conflict continue unresolved and damage continuing. And that's the time that we need to seek a counselor or a qualified mediator, someone outside who has the expertise and unbiased uh, experience that is invaluable to help us pursue um, the wholeness that God wants in our lives. All these are helpful tools to doing conflict differently. But as we end, I want us to just go back to that image of the speck of dust in the other person's eye and to think about what that would be like to actually do it. Imagine that we've gotten the beam out of our own eye, and now the task is to work uh, to care for that other person. It's a whole different perspective on doing conflict differently. You know, to take, actually take a speck out of somebody's eye, you have to get up really close, like way more than we are really comfortable with. It's like you got to get that far away from the eye. you got to be really careful, really precise, and you got to really care about the person to do that. you got to really be invested and in all about their uh, welfare and their good. And th that's the way um, that God wants us to be approaching one another with the kind of gentleness and sensitivity and care, and we can't do it when we got logs in our eyes. We can't do it when we haven't seen the unresolved stuff in our own experience. We can't do it till the place where we get the Lord's grace richly in us so that we're able to get close in that intimate thing of uh, conflict in our own lives with one another. And if we could do that with one another in conflict, to be that gentle and that caring, getting that close to the broken stuff, because we're admitting it to each other, we're sharing it with one another. That's an incredible grace that the, God, that the Lord gives us 
Jesus longs for his grace to take hold in our lives. He longs for the tenderness of his goodness and mercy to grip us and to grip our relationships with others so that his grace might take hold, bring life and transformation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord's table, we come as broken sinners who build lifestyles of self-righteousness. We come as those who judge others, who think we can fix other people. We come as those who've been hiding from you. And yet this table proclaims the gracious way that you deal with us in our blindness and brokenness. You came while we were still sinners and you died for us. Jesus, you bore the fullness of our judgment. When we in the world hurled condemnation on you, judgment and abuse on you, you bore it. You took it to the cross and you paid our debt undeserved. You bore it away so that we're forgiven, that we're cleansed from all of our self-righteousness so that we might be free to live a new life in you, full of grace, full of compassion, full of love. May we who have received your incredible grace and mercy show that to each other and to the world in the conflicts and issues that we see each day. Lord, as we come to this table, meet with us that we might commune with you, that we might receive your grace in measureless bounds, that we might be uh, filled up with your love and mercy and grace so that we might extend that to the world around us. We come thanking you and praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond to God's word today through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. There's a responsive reading on page 11 or on the screens. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. Holy and merciful God, our Father, you have made us in your image and for yourself. You have made this good world for us to tend and enjoy. God, our Father. Hear the praise of grateful hearts. You sought your ancient people when they strayed from you. You freed them from the oppressor and brought them home. God, our Father. Hear the praise of grateful hearts. You have sent your Son to bring us home to you by his incarnation. You have found us. By his death. You have forgiven us. By his resurrection. You have freed us. God, our Father. Hear the praise of grateful hearts. In union with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our great high priest, and with all who worship you, both in heaven and on earth, we offer you our praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Let's pray. Holy and merciful God, our Father, send down your Holy Spirit on our bread and wine that they may be for us the body and blood of Christ and on your people that we may be the body of Christ reconciled to you and to each other by his blood. By your Holy Spirit, make us Christ, one with each other and one in mission to all the world. Until Christ shall come in final glory, we feast together at this heavenly banquet. We cry, Maranatha. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. We invite you to come to this table if you know yourself to be a person who's blind, who needs a Savior who begins to help you see your blindness and your need for him, to show you those broken places and you... um, have come to him to say, Lord Jesus, mend those, heal those, forgive those. And you're trusting him to help you by the power of his presence in your life, by his spirit, to live a new life. If that's your testimony, your uh, faith this morning, come and receive his grace richly. If you haven't come to a place where you believe that and you've come to a place of trusting Jesus for that, we encourage you to uh, use the prayers that are on page 13, or you can come forward and just cross your arms as you come to the servers, and they'll pray for you. But uh, this is the Lord's table. He wants to commune with us so that we might drink in His grace and feed on His mercy and love so that we might be filled up and find life in Him. You'll be dismissed by Rose, and you'll come forward and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Um, There are wheat and gluten-free wafers here on the table if you prefer uh, that. There will be serving stations uh, to the right and left here and one in the balcony as well. And uh, LJ will come around uh, to serve you in your seat. If you can't come forward, just signal her. Um, But come commune with the Lord Jesus this morning.